Blue, 42. Blue, 42. Omaha. Omaha. Set, hut. Well, Paul, that really looked like it's a first down for Spooner. All right, first down. Huddle up, huddle up. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Dan once again, kicking off 2023. I am delighted to be joined by two normal guests, especially when we talk about sports medicine, Paul Gaiano and Becca Hibbert. Hello. Sir. Uh, on today's podcast, given the recent events of what has transpired in professional football, and specifically Patrick Mahomes, even though, caveat, we will not be speaking specifically to his injury or to any specific ankle injuries, in, but rather talking about ankle sprains in general, um, we are going to talk about acute management of ankle sprains. Now, that also leads into something that I'm going to pass over to Becca Hibbert for her to put her normal plug into about our Huddle Sports Medicine Conference. So don't forget that the Huddle is March 10th and 11th in Phoenix. Coming up pretty soon, we would love to have you all. So I'm sure in the show notes, we'll have links to sign up for the event. We have a ton of great speakers. It's a really good time. So we hope to see you there March 10th and 11th. And in the foot ankle section, we will be having Brett Fisher, Nick Thomas, and Ryan Johnson all speaking. Some amazing content. We look forward to hearing from those experts. They will probably expand into much greater detail off of what we're going to talk about in our pod today. But yes, please come join us in Phoenix in March. You will not regret it, especially in some parts of the country where it is below zero right now. Ha <laughs> So first question is, when you have a patient, both Becca and Paul, that has an acute ankle sprain, let's talk about like your go-to early on interventional strategies. Becca, I'm going to go to you first. So I'm going to take us back just a second uh -oh. here and talk about on-field management of that ankle sprain. So when an athlete injures themselves, oftentimes what you'll see is Obviously, hopefully they're being examined. Hopefully there's an athletic trainer there in professional sports. They're very lucky because you'll have multiple athletic trainers. You'll have physicians. You have a great team of individuals that can take a look at that athlete and determine if they're actually able to go back to play. Because, as we all know, I mean, ankle sprains do occur often in various sports. It's not just football. I mean, it's every sport there is. And so there are times based on injury through obviously making sure that there's not a fracture or a serious injury that we're able to tape them up and put them back into the game without serious repercussions post event. But so on the sideline, you know, you really want to make sure that you are determining and ruling out any type of fracture. What we know with ankle sprains or really in any injury is sometimes they can look a little uglier than they really are when they first present. And then when you go through looking at strength and range of motion and the athlete's ability to get back out onto the field, you do realize, okay, they may be able to do this. But then what you also have to know is now you got to be able to take care of that post event. So regardless of you put that athlete back out onto the field, then you have to start thinking about, okay, how am I taking care of this athlete immediately after the game, next day in treatments throughout the week? And so for me, what's interesting is being a little old, being in this for almost 16 years, you know, back in the day, we'll say, it was really 
tape somebody. If they could go back in, they come out, you ice. And that's kind of all you did because we weren't really talking about how important it was to try and maintain motion that was safe, try and work on some things throughout that first acute phase of rehab. So we were doing a lot of just like icing, putting them on crutches and not probably, as we know now, handling it as best as we could. And so then thankfully with research and getting older and learning things uh, and treating various athletes, you know, one of my go-tos for my athletes, especially acutely like day after, let's say, was getting them on a game ready. No, we are not sponsored by game ready. Uh, getting but them, I mean, if you want to send us one, we'd happily accept it. <laughs> uh, getting them on the game ready to try and take care of some of that acute pain that they were having, work with some light compression, and then get them out of that boot and start working in pain-free ranges of motion. And then, honestly, the nice thing about being an athletic trainer for me in the collegiate setting is I could see them multiple hours a day. So it wasn't just, okay, let me get a quick treatment in and then we'll send you back out. There was a lot of pre-practice, post-practice, throughout the day treatment to make sure that they were getting multiple rounds um, of various things that we were working on. I think that's some great insight and in, in some things for our therapists and or athletic trainer listeners to think about how you are utilizing the modalities and the strategies that you have at your disposal, but also looking at the frequency, which in a day, which oftentimes I think is forgotten. So Paul, I want to toss it your way before I provide uh, my approach. So your approach to acute management of ankle sprains. I like it. So transitioning obviously a bit off the field now, uh, have someone coming in acute. I mean, I'm thinking day after, you know, we're then 24 hours in some capacity. Um, a lot of it is a bit of what Becca has already touched on. Like, how can we assist with pain control? How can we get things going for them? Whether you're talking about ice. I know Dan loves his good old slushy baths. If you have access to game ready or things of that nature, all those beneficial. I'm a big fan of kinesio tape. I like to use kinesio tape both for the um, posterior taping of the distal aspect of the fibula as well as the little web swelling control component or insert other favorite tape here, obviously. I've just seen good relief be provided for the individual. Um, as well as some swelling assistance, which is always a nice component to have. And of course, you can also provide some stability if you want to assist with those. I'm assuming we're talking about inversion ankle sprain most commonly, so assist with the ligaments or switch it up depending upon what exact sprain we are talking about in that point in time. Um, past that, I'm trying to get early motion. I'm trying to the best I can. Think about how I can help them as they come down. This initial phase is protection. It's letting things heal. Um, but knowing that the longer people are immobilized or unable to be active, the harder it is going to be to get back to what they're trying to get back to. So it's all about safety, but it's about how much can I push? I don't want to push the boundaries of safety, but push the ankle without putting anything at potential risk. And I know in a minute after you talk about um, your initial thoughts, Dan, I'm hoping you'll share your story with a referring provider, um, not getting upset with you or anyone in particular, but just sharing some of his uh examples and frustrations with stretching of the ankle. And we'll talk about early motion, but I do want to be clear, I do not like the idea of stretching the ankle in any capacity. Honestly, at, at any point, I don't feel like it's overly necessary. Um, but I'll transition to you before we dive into that rabbit hole. Yeah, so kind of my go-tos, it's kind of a blend of what Becca and Paul said. You know, having an athletic training degree, being able to do an on-the-field assessment um, and, and utilizing auto ankle rules to determine one, if we need a plane film or not. And, and if that's indicated, then let's get it and let's 
rule that out or rule that in and, and, and then move on. And I think that's just one of the most important things. I actually did that here over the weekend and, you know, reassured a family at this point in time that it, it was not necessary unless something drastically changed, which that really shouldn't happen unless they came back to play too soon. So one of my favorite things, and I'll never forget when I was uh, traveling with our men's basketball team in college and one of my guys, good friend, got <clears throat> hurt on a practice on Wednesday and coach told me, I don't need him at the away game on Thursday, but I need him at the away game on Saturday. And so thank goodness for you know that really wet hotel ice uh, and some trash cans. And we did the slush bucket for you know, three to five minutes, get it nice and numbed up. And depending on their weight-bearing tolerance, I was a firm believer in getting weight-bearing exercises as early as possible within successful ranges. Again, kind of like Paul said, not stretching the ankle, but creating some proprioceptive input into that joint complex, knowing that they're gonna have a little bit of numbness from the, 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 the cold water and repeating that cycle with either two combinations of weight-bearing exercises and one combination of non-weight-bearing, just active range of motion, to, again, to Paul's point of not forcing that range, but utilizing the range that was available by the patient or the athlete, and then going back into the water and, and doing that probably three times. Um, to Becca's point, you know, when, when we were working with that athlete in the athletic training session, it was three, four, five times a day, we were doing that just, hey, we have 15 minutes, that's enough time to get our three to four sessions in, let's go. And just the really positive response that occurred from that, I think that there's something to be said about getting early weight bearing and successful stimuli into that joint complex. Uh, and then the other thing I'll add before we go on kind of the story that Paul was alluding to was now adding in the, the PT side, and shout out to Institute of Physical Art, is I will really look at, is that talus, quote unquote, on access? Is it where, where it's supposed to be underneath the tibia and over the calcaneus and in line with the tarsals? And if that's the case, there's a higher probability that the joint proprioceptors will be allowed to be efficient and help with that remodeling again because it, it, it can accept the load with greater success. Real quick, before we transition to the story, I have a follow-up question for the two of you. And we were speaking earlier, you mentioned Patrick Mahomes, uh, report came out recently, like he's been rehabbing five, six hours a day trying to prepare, which is one, obviously important for us to keep in mind and think about the rest of us, and us <laughs> right. might be high school athlete, might be weekend warrior, might be anyone who doesn't have six hours per day they're able to devote with a host of the best <laughs> professionals on the planet to the health of their ankle. But outside of that, so considering, like, take your average athlete, what are the recommendations you two give them for icing at home, elevation at home, the frequency, the duration? Because it's always an interesting one. People like to change. What do they recommend? What do they do? Dan, you talked some good things about, like, early weight bearing. But how do you help your athlete manage things on their own? Because we know the best thing they can do is be on top of this as frequently as possible and not just when they see you for a precious little time you might have available. So 
for me, I mean, I think for all of us, right, it's compliance. How much can we really get individuals to comply with what we say? The nice thing is with athletes, for the most part, they're very motivated. And so if we, what I was going to say to your guys' point is, first, it's getting that buy-in, right? If our acute care is not just, okay, ice and elevate, then they realize, okay, there is more going on in this process. So I'm going to buy into this process. I'm going to do what they say to do at home. Age of athlete for me matters. Uh, you can, of course, involve parents in that, but at the end of the day, like you have to know the age of your athlete to understand how compliant or how often they may do something. So I often would just recommend go home every hour. You're gonna be laying there probably watching TV or doing maybe homework, but more likely watching TV. <laughs> every hour, do 15 minutes of some type of cold or compression and elevation, and then I would give them basic exercises to do at home. So like the ABCs, yes, I know that's pretty basic, or ankle pumps, that's very basic, but I can trust them for the most part to stick with that and stick in pain-free range of motions. And that's always the biggest thing with them is make sure it's pain-free. If you're gonna weight bear, be very careful as you're walking around, depending on pain, depending obviously on injury. And so it's, I would love if an athlete goes home and at least does that two times more in the during the day, if they can find that in the evening. Does that always happen? No, I would love one time a day and then one time being treated, whether it's in the clinic or in the athletic training room, whatever it may be. Is this, a, is this physical age or emotional age? What age are you going <laughs> off of? We go off physical and emotional uh, intelligence. We do a combo. Okay. Good, to, good to know. <laughs> you, and that's why it's so important to know your athletes, to know who you're working with. Because to be honest with you, there are certain things you cannot send certain athletes home with because usually it is because they're so motivated, they are going to push the limits of it. And like you talked about, we don't want to be overstretching or causing more more injury. So there may be things where you make it so basic for the athlete at home because you know if you give them too much rope, they are going to take it, run with it, and maybe not get back in. I've heard people talk about the rule of fives. I use it a lot with my endurance athletes. I assume they're just going to do five times as much as what I tell them they're allowed to do. So sometimes you have to make up the math in your head to bring it down a bit, knowing that certain things we pushed well beyond what you'd intended them to be. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that I would add to that is, you know, specific to the PT brain is when you have somebody with that acute ankle injury and really any acute injury is to throw out your default frequency and duration and say you're in the clinic every single day because things are going to change. And what we know related to the athletic training world is if you if the school is lucky enough to have an athletic trainer in the high school, which we know the statistics on that are very underwhelming versus collegiate high school or professional levels. There is an athletic trainer there and they're going to be seeing that person on a regular basis. So let's take that approach into the PT realm and say, if this athlete does not have it because their school doesn't employ an athletic trainer or they employ a single athletic trainer that is caring for 1200 athletes and doesn't have the bandwidth to be able to assist with that care, even though they may want to and be very good at it, they just don't have the bandwidth is say, let's get, you're going to be in the clinic every single day because your presentation is probably going to change relatively quickly. And, and, you know, similar to what Becca's saying, if I can get them to do 
one or two additional sets at home, the probability I'm going to get somebody to comply with my slush bucket at home is very low. <laughs> Most people, myself included, hate the slush bucket because it is not fun, but it is very, very effective. If I can get them to elevate an ice or elevate and heat at a certain point just so they feel like they have the ability to get more motion. Most of the time I use ice because I feel like it has a better analgesic effect. I am technically not opposed to heating. I know there's some conflicting information out there that some people don't like ice and they only use heat and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but as I've evolved in my overall career, I'm not anti-heat like I used to be in athletic training school where ice is nice, heat is a four letter word. Uh, don't necessarily subscribe to that anymore, but I think she's right. Like what can I give them that's realistic for them to do before I see them or they are seen by a colleague the next day in the clinic? I like that a lot and I, I apologize. I keep deferring off from me actually getting the story that I've already asked you to share, but give me a little bit more on your clinical rationale, Dan, because you bring up a really good point. Too often I feel like we default to, oh, it's been recommended that in research, it's been recommended by experts that I see someone two to three times a week for blah, blah weeks. Sometimes we forget that coming in five times per week or maybe even six times per week as a number of the athletes at Sports Institute might end up doing is they have, you know, Saturday availability is there can help expedite the process and might save you a lot of visits on the back end. Most important thing is the athlete's health, both physically and mentally and getting back to the field. But also if we're looking at a purely financial point, you might actually save them money by putting more things up front. I'm just curious, are there any additional considerations you take into play? Um, repeated ankle sprains in the past, duration of recovery in the past, sport, other things you're going to help people from the clinical rationale you go through when maybe convincing someone to come in five times per week um, and they're not entirely sure that's the route that makes the most sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to a few things. One is knowing your athlete or knowing the athlete as, as best you can figure out if you haven't treated them before is, you know, how driven are they? Um, getting a good subjective history of what their practice schedule looks like and or their next set of competition because they may say, hey, it, uh, you know, we have a huge scouting tournament in three weeks that I have to be back for. Okay, well, we can hit this early and fast. There's a higher probability that the closer we get to that event, I'm going to have a better idea of what you have earned the ability to do and not to, to do for that show, showcase tournament or whatever it may be. I think having previous injury history or chronic ankle instability and understanding the duration that it has taken for them to recover previously is huge. And that might be the differentiator to help them buy into five times or five or six times a week as compared to, well, last time you had this happen, I can see here, you're only seen twice a week. It took you 14 weeks to get better what were the barriers in place? And it might've been, well, the therapist that I was with or the trainer that I was seeing didn't want me to come in that, that aggressively. Part of it could be they didn't have enough variability in how to approach the treatment of that and thinking about, wait, I can put them in half kneeling, take their affected ankle out and go train the daylights out of their proximal hip stabilizers as something that I know you would do, Paul, and have that have a massive benefit and have a massive day where it's all core exercises. Again, with the, the research saying, if there's a lateral ankle injury, there's a high probability it's going to create inhibitions through the lateral hip stabilizers. Well, what's the fascial connection to the lateral hip stabilizers? 
Oh yeah, it's the lateral core. Probably something that is under-trained in the vast majority of us. And then we have a lateral ankle sprain and now that is has a direct inhibition because of that. Let's see if we can create a, a more diverse treatment approach with a greater variability of, of not just focusing on, fo focusing on the local injury, but traveling up the chain through IT band, through you know lateral fib muscles, which I know you're going to talk about in a little bit, that those are just things that I think we as clinicians need to utilize the team around us to come up with a, the best treatment strategy to have that patient buy into five to six times a week. I just want to piggyback on something you said earlier when you were talking about ice versus heat. And as somebody who is on Twitter and there's a lot of AT Twitter and PT Twitter arguments over ice and heat, just understand that what we're recommending, <laughs> we're not <laughs> recommending that you do anything specific for a certain amount of time, right? You are clinicians and you understand, but as Brett Fisher says all the time, you also have to treat the pain. If you don't touch the pain, the athlete is gonna look at you like, thanks so much for getting me to stand up, but I'm still having pain in this ankle. And so it doesn't mean you have to ice for days on end. It doesn't mean you have to ice or have to heat. You just have to remember the mental aspect of an injury as well for your athlete also means including probably one of those modalities along the way. Um, you're the clinician, you treat based on the research and what you're seeing, but also understand that we're gonna recommend some of that stuff because from a mental aspect, it is very important for your athlete to know you touched the pain they're having. That's a great point. I mean, uh, I'm not afraid to use ice and stim or compression and stim. Again, we know that if it, evidence is out there that IFC blocks the del delta fibers. So if that means that that's gonna give them a temporary pain reduction and I can utilize, you know, game ready, Normatec, their body, whatever your brand of compression boots out are there to, to get preemptively early on in their session, some of that swelling out and have a little bit of pain modulation. Cause maybe they don't tolerate the cold or they have an allergy to cold, which that actually does exist where they break out in hives. That's just something you have to be aware of. And so you have to use some of those other modalities. And so I, you know, I think that's a great thing to bring up in that situation, if that's what needs to be done, that's what needs to be done and utilize it and move on. You're not going to utilize it for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, you're going to get them over that hump to where, like you said, you've touched the pain and that that's a great component from a mental side. Okay. So let's go. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the question based on what Paul has already alluded to a couple times. And that was, you know, 18 months ago, we had a, a foot ankle specialist orthopedic surgeon in, in the clinic, having kind of a clinical round table with our team here. And he asked permission to go on a little bit of a rant and I'm not going to go into the details of his rant, but I'm rather going to ask the question that was related to the rant of, when somebody is acutely injured in their foot ankle complex, talk to me about your guys' thought process of early range of motion and or quote unquote early stretching. So I want to get range of motion going as quickly as I can. But as Becca said, it's your pain-free range of motion or you're understandable. I mean, certain people might be a little more fearful and everything might be painful. And you could make an argument that's the most important person to get some motion going. You might be going down a whole host of other potential issues for that individual. 
So I want motion, but I like to be guided by the patient. I just do not see the necessity to ever stretch. And, I, and I, when we were doing a little bit of pre-show, Beck was saying all that. She's people like toss the long towel out, do the dorsiflexion stretch, you know, get things going with the knee extended and get a little gastroc in there. I, I get it. And like I said, I want early motion, but I just don't see a necessity for that. I think there are other ways to address tissue mobility without forcing a stretch. And Obviously, ATFL gets all the love, but of course, if we're looking at just, again, inversion ankle sprains, we could look at all three different ligaments going on. And yes, I could test out and be confident which one, two, or all three of them are involved. And I could potentially be like, yes, you know, we could do some dorsiflexion coupled with eversion because I'm not going to that inversion component. It's going to stretch those ligaments. Yeah, I know I could probably do those things, but it goes into some of the compliance things Becca mentioned before. Who knows how well people are going to follow your specific instructions. And again, at the end of the day, if I have them actively moving and controlling, I'm going to be able to get what I'm looking for of keeping the joint mobile to some degree. And then I like to give people a lot of things to clean up the around the area. So, for example, we know from research, we know we're going to have the fibula having issues. We talked about, and Dan mentioned before, you know, that anterior displacement or anterior placement, depending on however you want to define it. In my head, what I tend to see then is I know that peroneals or fibularis is all going to be very gunky. So I like to give my patient a lot of active release. I'll have them just kind of finding an active spot, whether it's with their hand or with a lacrosse ball, whatever they have available, and going through some active motions in a relatively, again, pain-free range while doing some soft tissue release proximally. Tracing the entire path of the fib, especially going down in between gastroc soleus muscle belly. So kind of getting that medial lateral gastroc to separate as we get some motion. We know the body is going to tense up and protect the injured area. And that's fine. We need some protection. But I want to be keeping things moving as much as possible and then trying to help, again, expedite the process later. If I never touch a single muscle on the lateral component and I let the person go through and heal, by the time I finally get into actually mobilizing the fibula, and it's appropriate to mobilize, because it's gonna be a direct attachment, these, these ligaments we're discussing, there's gonna be so much soft tissue gunk for me to try to clean through. I'm gonna be losing visits, most likely weeks, trying to just prepare them to do the things I need them to do, and I've never found myself limited when I don't have someone stretch, as opposed to just doing active release, active things. If anyone has like voodoo floss or some similar things out there, um, I've used a lot of those techniques, both for myself and for patients to great benefit. There's a lot of things you can do to keep the tissues moving without risking potential injury um, and upsetting the orthopedic surgeon who comes in and gets angry because of the surgery sometimes has to do because of the incompetent stretching that does occur out there, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you can work on without, like you said, harming them. Uh, as Paul mentioned, I've seen a few times where you just hand somebody the towel and you're like, okay, just stretch until you you know, have pain. It's like, okay, let's not do that in the acute phase of what we're doing. But you can, like I said, you, you have to get buy-in too. So if you just have an athlete on the table, you're just icing, you're just doing compress compression, and then you're like, okay, and you're good. One, we're obviously not treating the athlete to the highest level, but two, they're thinking to themselves, why am I coming in here and doing this? So you have to keep in mind all the things that you can work on them with during this acute phase without harming them, including obviously, like don't forget about, and I've learned this a lot from Paul and Dan, like don't forget about great toe as well during this process. If they're non-weight bearing or if they're in a certain type of, hopefully not cast, but any type of like compression wrap or something like that, 
you may lose sight of that great toe and that's not going to be great for them when they go back. So make sure that you're also treating that, working through that range of motion. That should be pretty painless for them. But if you don't pay attention to it, it could become an issue when you do return them. You Becca, bring up a great point. I, I'm always a big fan of looking at how many things, like I said, I'm trying to prepare for success in the future. Great toe plays a huge role into this. I know there's likely a challenge as far as ankle dorsiflexion is going to be concerned. Great toe is not quite moving. That's going to lead to potential continued limitations or additional challenges on the on top of it. I can mobilize a lot of the midfoot, a good component of the midfoot, without putting any stress to the ligament. I can go up the chain. Maybe I have a person who's always had some limited hip IR. And there's always been a little discrepancy as far as that femoral and tibial interrotation that's going to be happening with the phase of gaze, especially if we're going into that anterior progression, we're getting dorsiflexion happening. This can be a great opportunity to start working on those things that, again, maybe they've been able to deal with fine in the past, but when something's a little bit under the weather, not 100%, it's going to rear its ugly head. Or sometimes, you talked about the mental health of the athlete, both of you have. I've literally had athletes where I've just said, all right outside of the ankle, like what's a frustration you've had when you're trying to move or stretch or lift or whatnot. And sometimes it's nice because especially if you have like an acute ankle sprain that is really significant and you're like, I'm going to be spending a couple weeks really trying to take care of this for the mental sanity of the athlete. You can be like, hey, here's kind of an opportunity now. You're not going to be practicing. You're not going to be running. You're not going to be doing whatever it is you're trying to do. Let's take care of some things. You told me before you complained about like you have the hardest time, the 90-90 position with your hips. You know, you tried pails and rails forever and you're just not getting anywhere. Or you recognize like you've been told forever and ever, you just don't get a good arm swing going. We know the thoracic spine is limited. If some of the exercises and treatment is quote unquote simplistic for the ankle or basic for the ankle or limited for the ankle because there's not much you can do, take advantage of that time. Give them something else they can do. Work on the other trouble spots because they're going to, one, get that instantaneous buy-in. So like, hey, they actually care about me. They actually care that I'm getting back and I'm going to be able to perform even better. And I don't feel like I'm losing as much right now especially the higher level athletes, they're going to be really frustrated. I'm going to be losing the cardio I built up, losing the strength I built up. You're going to lose something, but how many things can I help you maintain or even improve while we're waiting for the rest of you to be ready to join into the entire event? When I think right there, if anybody was going to go back and listen to something again, they would want to go back and listen to that component because that's probably what the vast majority of people miss in all aspects of rehab when there is an injured body part is how can I utilize this to my advantage while appropriate healing is going on, tissue remodeling is going on, and then at the appropriate stages in tissue remodeling and the histological components that won't change, that's deeply rooted in science. Yes, it's science. Take advantage of those opportunities to say, look, over these next 14 days, there's only so much I can do while this tissue is healing, but we have this huge opportunity to go to another body part that has been troublesome and focus some extra attention there, not negating, going back to Becca's point of not negating the painful area, the surgical area, the involved area, but also saying, great, we've taken care of that. We've given that the time that it needs for this session. We now have two days in a row that we can go aggressively after another part of your body that when you are, when we can take the, the injured body part, ankle, whatever, to the next level, everything else is hopefully working with just a little bit greater efficiency to, again, take some stress off that injured spot. So I think that's hugely important. And I think what that'll also do, you know, to that orthopedic, orthopedic surgeon's concerns is 
we're communicating that we're working on those things. We're respecting the fact that we aren't overstretching a healing ligament, but we're putting healthy and appropriate stress through a healing ligament, understanding how tissue remodeling is going to occur, but also remembering when tissue modeling does occur and that we have to be in that right time zone. And it's always interesting too, and I, I believe this for probably a different podcast and someone with more expertise than I, but start going the pain science route. We obviously know negative and positive associations, and we know the difference from performance side as far as like having a negative component or a positive component. But positive can also be, some people think positive is like fight through, fight through, you can do this, fight through, but it, there's almost a negative connotation to that. You're just trying to survive or just trying to exceed versus really feeling good about where you are and having a truly positive outlook. If we now are starting to look at some of these injuries as opportunities to address other things, no, it doesn't take the frustration away. I know there's still a challenge, but when we talk about the athletes, especially high-level athletes who their entire life <laughs> and most of the their safe place, the one place they can go when things aren't where they want it to be, their sport, is taken away from them, it can be a very powerful component to be able to say, let's say this extraordinarily frustrating event is now going to be a truly positive opportunity to take advantage of and make you even better, faster, stronger, et cetera, can help with some of the more frustrating mental blocks that you run into. I think it's important too, if you hear everything that we've said today is, I'll speak to the athletic trainers that might listen to this. You may not have a lot in your athletic training room and you think, you know, you think of like a Patrick Mahomes and yes, he had everything thrown at him for sure. But what I hope you hear is that you don't need a lot in order to treat an acute injury. The biggest thing that you can do for that athlete is just not to have them not do anything, basically. As long as you can keep it safe, there are plenty of things that you can do without a lot of equipment, without a lot of fancy things that will still help get your athletes back in a timely manner. And I think sometimes we always hear about what the pros have and all these super fancy things, but we also know there's not a lot of research behind a lot of those fancy things. And what the research does show is a lot of what we can do, you can do with your hands, you can do with simple compression, with simple range of motion exercises, proprioception, all these things can be safe and do not have to be in an environment where you have a bunch of like amazing thousand dollar gizmos everywhere either. Well, and I think the other thing, you know, speaking to both the physical therapists and the athletic trainers is setting realistic expectations. I mean, in Mahomes's post game interview, he stated he was in the, he was getting treatment five to six hours a day. You know, we alluded to that at the beginning, but I think it's also we have to be realistic when we have a conversation with an athlete and or their parent and or their physician and or their coach, whoever is involved in that, that process of like, this is the confines that we have. This is what's available at our discretion. Here is what we expect moving forward over the next day, two days, three days, five days. And that I think helps with the buy-in component as well as not trying to give false sense of, you know, security saying, yeah, you'll be back next Saturday. No, that's not necessarily the case. Let's see how you progress. And let's see how, as we've spoken to on so many of our other podcasts, are you earning the right to progress rather than it just be a true timetable to, re to, to return, to progress. I think there's just so many things there that we need to take professional responsibility of having a little bit more overt communication on the timeline and the expectations so that everybody 
hears it, especially again, speaking to an athletic trainer who might be all by themselves in a, a setting and may not have a great relationship with a PT or a doc and they're, they're out on an island, like having that confidence to say, I can't answer that right now. Give me two days of consistent treatment. This is how much time this athlete can give to the treatment. And here's where we're going to reevaluate. Just giving a coach or a parent that level. Again, with the realization, if it's a high school kid, they got to go to class. They can't live in the athletic training room for five, six, seven hours a day. Even at the college level, they got to go to class. Um, you know, not like one of the Ohio State guys a number of years ago that says, I'm here to play football. I'm not here to go to class. <laughs> the vast majority of collegiate athletes are to go to class, not to play football. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? So having that realization of managing it throughout, and it kind of speaks to Paul's point of like how, what expectations you set. I, I, I really want our listeners to take to heart how can I create success through a day and what is realistic for this patient? Because you all know the next time somebody has an ankle sprain, they're going to come in they're like, well, Patrick Mahomes played in a week. And hopefully this podcast will at least give you a little bit of, uh, and, and of ammo for some different treatment strategies and the ability to have a communication with the athlete to say, right, but you don't have the ability to get five to six hours of care a day. I love I love the advice and all the suggestions and I I'm, I have so many things I want to ask but I'm trying to keep this to acute ankle sprains and not going beyond the acute but I do want to have one final question for the two of you say we do have an acute ankle sprain and obviously we don't recommend playing before you've earned the right but we also know the reality of life that there are going to be people that play when their body's not ready for it for any number of reasons outside of again you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Are there certain things when you know you've already lost that battle that you two like to do to help at least try to provide a little more success or diminish the likelihood of re-aggravation or continued aggravation? So from my perspective, it's probably going to lead to taping. (laughs) Um, There's always bracing options. Typically, if an athlete has not been playing with a brace, it is hard in a short window to get them used to that, uh, especially depending on the kind of athlete, the bulkiness of all that kind of stuff. Um, I've actually, oddly enough, learned a ton about tape in the past year, uh, thanks to Allie Bauer at Milliken. So shout, shout, shout out, out to her. Just about the tape that actually holds up versus the tape that loosens up really quickly. Uh, There's actually a lot of starting to be more research about that. So really understanding the type of tape that you should be using for those athletes. And the thing is, is you can't just throw them back in. So you have to not just tape them, but then be back out on the field or the court. And you have to see how they're handling that situation. Um, You may see some limping. We've seen some limping. You know, you don't want that. Once again, in an ideal world, none of your athletes are out there looking that way. And it is different depending on the level, what you're like what you're allowed to say no to. But uh, for me, yeah, I just, you know, I start going through like the various kinds of taping, what works, how can we stabilize so that they feel comfortable, that they're still able to do enough motion, but not so much motion that they're re-injuring themselves. Um, And you just kind of have to know that next day, you might be starting that acute phase over a little bit again after that game. But I think that goes into setting the expectation ahead of time. If they're telling you I'm, I'm playing on Saturday, okay, 
we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you're as ready as possible, knowing that Sunday morning you're back in the training room or the treatment area as soon as the door opens, basically. But I would agree I will also go the taping route um, because I can make it more specific to the findings of them. You know, maybe it's also somebody that struggled with a long time for a long time with, you know, a hyperpronated foot. And I can give them a little bit of a navicular lift. Uh, I will use a combination of tapes. I will utilize the evidence out there from the NBA study a number of years ago, Paul, that you've talked about with just that posterior superior pull of the fibula assuming that it's not going to put too much stress through the in the injury site, you know, but again, with varying types of tape, and I agree that the products that Ali has shown from Milliken are fantastic, and I wish I would have had more access to those when I was younger, but, you know, it is what it is. Th that's the direction I'm going to go, assuming that the athlete has the ability to get that done. If they don't have the ability to get that done, then I will most likely use some sort of kinesio tape in the clinic the day, uh, like the morning of or the day before the competition, and then at least find some sort of brace. Agreed with Becca's point. If they haven't played with the brace on before, they're probably not going to like it, especially depending on their shoe. You know, if it's if it's a footballer or a soccer player getting back on and they have a really tight boot, you put an ankle brace in somebody with a really tight boot and they are going to not be happy with you. If it's a basketball player who's not used to having a high top and now you put on an ankle brace, it feels like a high top, they might not be happy with you. But again, it, it's setting that expectation of if you want to get back on the court, this is what I have available. So yeah, tape is my go-to gold strategy if I can. You know, I'll find out if there's going to be an AT on site. I will have the patient athlete bring their own tape so that there isn't a burden on the trainer who the athletic trainer who's covering that event just to try and make it easy because of things that we've run into when we've covered events, right, Becca? Yeah. But that's kind of my go-to is, is definitely the tape because I can customize it more to the uniqueness of the individual. All right, well, this was a fun, engaging conversation. Hopefully you all had some nuggets just like we did. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or uh, suggested topics, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks, and don't forget to register for the huddle. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 